Good morning, good morning. I'll just be honest, today's been a very interesting day, complete with tablet issues. So I might preach off my phone. So there you go. Amen. Um, yeah, just two quick apologies, which I usually don't like to start sermons with apologies, but um, one is that if I seem a little bit stiff today, is that I got stung by 17 wasps yesterday, and I'm in pain. And so uh, I, I didn't take anything this morning to help it because I didn't want to be disheveled and just not really know what was going on. And so there you have it. So I might just kind of be a little bit, you know, I, I was going to send my manuscript to some of the other elders or something like that, but Tony's already got COVID. I got the, the next plague, which is the wasp. I didn't want the next elder I sent it to to get whatever else was coming to him. And so I just chose to sort of grit and bear it. And then uh, also, um, I apologize for the sermon title, uh, Preaching Jesus in the Temple Sleepover. I sent it to uh, some of the elders and some other folks on Wednesday night. I said, hey guys, that's all I got. You got to help me. And I said, if Sunday rolls around and that's still where we are, then that's just what it's going to be. So uh, there we go, uh, the preteen Jesus, preteen Jesus and the temple sleepover. So uh, anyway, so this has been an, an interesting time. Amen. And uh, I'm changing the settings on my phone so it won't fall asleep on me. <laughs> so yeah, if you have your Bible, if you're not already there, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 2. And this reminds me of a scene that was repeated in my childhood several times. So in my, in my family, the Tiesca family, we have this tradition. I think it's one of the greatest traditions known to man, and it's our Tiesca family reunion. And the descendants of my grandparents, uh, great-grandparents, Demery and Bessie Tiesca, they would get together every other even year, uh, with the exception of 2020, in my life. And so it was great. We would have a banquet. We would uh, honor those to whom honor was due. We would uh, remember those who we've lost um, that since the previous reunion, and we would eat a ton of food. And so my favorite was uh, Uncle Elmer's barbecue. We looked forward to that. Uh, Aunt Ruth's pies. We looked forward to that as well. But whenever we would go out to eat, we had an insatiable thirst for low-quality food <laughs> in, in vast quantities that's been breathed on by the masses. I think Jimmy Woosley understands this. Uh, the idea of food being breathed on, and with tongs that are just caked with all kinds of stuff. In short, we love to go to buffets. <laughs> and so 150 of us, we would go to a buffet, and then we would just get up and leave in mass. And then, you know, what would happen is, you know, you just kind of get in the cars and then go. And, you know, if you were an adult, you would, you know, if you drove, if you came with five people, you would just make sure you left with five people, and then, you know, other adults would look out, and they would leave with as many people as they came with, and then everyone would get to where they were going. You see, this is not the exact same thing as what was going on in this story, but it's kind of similar. The assumption is, is that Jesus, or Mary and Joseph were traveling alone, but they weren't. They were with a bunch of friends and family and acquaintances, which actually gives us a little bit of understanding of how Jesus can be left behind. And in fact, there was a lot of theories about how they would travel, kids up front as they were traveling for days, and then, you know, women second, and then men third, bringing up the rear for safety and such, which actually makes it even more plausible about how Jesus could get left behind in this way. 
And so this is similar to what was happening in, you know, this was what was happening in the story. And so Mary and Joseph were just astonished at the end of that first night, a uh, first day's trip, when they're like, where's Jesus? Wasn't he up there with the kiddos? Well, it turns out he wasn't. He was back at, in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. And so uh, there's only one narrative of Jesus in his adolescence in the canonical or biblical gospels, and this is it. And so all the other stories of Jesus are about his infancy, which is what chapter 1 and all the way up through chapter 2 of Luke have been so far. And then also after this, it's you know, in his ministry when he's 30 plus. And so, but this is the one story that we have. There have been some uh, apocryphal gospels or extra biblical gospel accounts that have attempted to capture the lost years of Jesus uh, in his youth, and some of those are most famously, famously amongst those is the Gospel of Thomas. Anybody ever heard of the Gospel of Thomas kind of here and there? It's not, not in here, but it's out there, uh, in, in fragments, no less, but that's what they are trying to do. And so in here, in the apocryphal Gospels, Jesus was by and large a miracle and magic-working Jesus with all the powers of divinity, but with the impulses of a pre-adolescent boy, which resulted in uh, both comedy and calamity. And so when Jesus was 12, the infancy gospel of Thomas records a couple of things going on. And he, he brings 12 clay pigeons to life. He raises a playmate from the dead after he fell. He stretched a piece of wood for his father Joseph, who was a carpenter, because it was too short. And then he did some crazy things, like he struck a young boy um, dead who uh, bumped into him by accident. And then also he, uh, he blinded one of his accusers. So the apocryphal Jesus stands oftentimes in unsavory contrast to the biblical Jesus. And so if, if, you, if you're following the, throughout the scripture, uh, in, in the gospels, when Jesus does a, a miracle, what he's doing is restoring something to its pre-fall state. You know, when someone dies, he rose them from the dead. When somebody is sick, he heals them. It's reminding them of where we've come from and also where we're going in the kingdom when there is no more tears, just like the text we read this morning. There's only one illustration or one miracle that is contrary to that, and that's when he uh, actually uh, he cursed the fig tree. But that was an illustration of what was going on in the story that was previous to that. And so, this is, so when we see Jesus in the, in the Gospels that are in the text, what we want to do is understand that the reason why those other Gospels are not in the, the Bible is because they contradict the, the uh, testimony of Christ in uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but also about who Jesus is prophesied to be in the Old Testament and what the, uh, the uh, epistolary literature says about him in the epistles. You see? The reason why I spend at least a moment on this is because I've gotten questions from folks in the church and even beyond about what, you know, what's wrong with these other gospels and why aren't they here? Well, there you go. And so let's go ahead and jump into this text uh, that's in front of us that features Jesus growing in his messianic identity and uh, communicating these realities to his parents. And so in many ways, this is a coming of age moment that helps Jesus understand who he is and how to understand himself in this transitional age of you know, being a preteen. And so let's, let's go ahead and jump into the first two verses, setting the scene. It says, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. 
And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And so this word went is in the iterative imperative in the original language, which simply means this, that it implies that Jesus' family was faithful. They habitually did this. They were always going to celebrate the Passover when it was time to do so. And the word, the language every year also underscores that reality of their faithfulness. And so Passover was one of the uh, several annual feasts that Jewish people would uh, celebrate per Deuteronomy 16, 16. And Jesus' family, they regularly took this pilgrimage. So Nazareth, it wasn't close. I mean, it was about a three days journey from Jerusalem. Imagine you have to uh, travel for three days to go to church. I mean, sometimes 15 minutes seems hard with three kids. <laughs> and, but they took three days of a journey. This was a sacrifice. Um, financially, it was a sacrifice. They had a plan to do this. They just didn't show up at, in, in Jerusalem. I mean, this, this was something that uh, God's people had to take care to worship him rightly. And I think we can learn a lot from that. And so uh, it's just a, a great joy in these first two verses to see a family who worships God and follows their will or his will for their lives with such joy and not drudgery. And so this reminds me of the shaping powerful, uh, power of our rituals and customs in our daily life. So the patterns that we set for ourselves, they shape us for better or for worse. They shape our hearts. They shape our minds. The things that we put before ourselves consistently, they inform us in how we respond to things. And so this is why the Bible insists in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, that we should not forsake gathering with God's people. A continuous formative reality Joshua 1, uh, 8 says that, uh, that the law shall not depart from our mouths. We have to continue talking about it, but we shall meditate on it all day and night. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ for you. Our customs are powerful. And even when we're not feeling our customs sometimes, then I, I know we're, I'm, I'm talking to people here. Sometimes we don't feel our customs. You know, we're, we don't just feel it in our hearts. Our hearts are always warmed to do the things we know they're supposed to do. But at the same time, these things that we put in our lives, especially the things of God, have the power to then draw our affection for God out of us. So as we're doing what the Bible is calling us to do, as we set our customs, our practices, and our patterns, let those things draw the joy out of you that is in Christ in us. In dry spells, these, these patterns can be life-giving. So our customs, they not only help us with our own spiritual development, but it also begs the question, what do our particular customs that we have in our lives, what do they communicate to others? What does your customs and your practice and your, and your patterns communicate to your coworkers, to your neighbors, to your children, and also to unbelieving family? Does your vigor for meeting with the gathered body communicate that there's something special that goes on when we get together here? Does your desire to read the scripture demonstrate to your children that there's something amazing found in God's word? Do they know that mommy and daddy, when something has gone wrong, they go to the book and to the people of God? You know, when, when you, um, uh, your spending habits, what do they say about your values? 
I mean, we've just reached the end of a year, and you can go back to, you know, just reflect on or even look back at bank statements, credit card statements. What do your, what do your, uh, your spending say about what you value? These customs. And so lastly, I'll just give you one more. Uh, has it become your pattern to allow sporting events or vacations to consistently uh, take precedence over corporate worship. See, these are, these are our patterns that speak a lot to us, and I think COVID altered a lot of habits for us. It's interrupted a lot of healthy habits that I pray that we can get back into, but it's also given space for us to cultivate, to slow down and cultivate new and healthy habits as well that we must fight to maintain as we get back into a new normal. So our customs matter. And so now let's, as we look to the next couple of verses, the next three verses, uh, we, we see the lost Messiah in verses 43 and following. It says, <clears throat> and, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing, he, uh, supposing him to be with the group, you know, more than just the, the family, a whole bunch of them, they went a day's journey and they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And so this, these verses right here have caused people to ask two questions. One, did Jesus sin here? And also, why Mary and Joseph such bad parents? <laughs> So to the first one, uh, some critics who want to poke holes in Christian doctrine go to this text to insist that Jesus wasn't perfect, therefore not being qualified to be the Messiah. I need to stop moving so much. I'm getting excited. <laughs> All the right side is just inflamed. Um, so uh, so I, have, I have two children and, uh, that, who are prone to getting lost. You know, I, I have more children than two, but I'll let you figure out who's who. Uh, I, I have one who just loves to, like, there's a song in her head all the time, dancing around, prancing, and just, like, going and going and going, and all of a sudden, she's somewhere where she doesn't know where she is. I have another one who will pick up a stick, and then see another stick, and then see another stick, and before he knows it, oh, I only have one son, <clears throat> uh, <laughs> he's gone, and then, and then Stephanie's like, where, is, where are the kids? In fact, we were actually, when I was preparing for the sermon this, this, this week, or last week, I forget when it was, uh, Kendra comes up to my office and she says, Daddy, we lost Trey! And I'm like, oh, it's, it's, this is actually happening. So anyway, this is real life. And so what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that my children didn't mean to sin against me, but it was a reality that I was in distress when we couldn't find my son. You guys see how that works? So just because there's someone who's in distress doesn't always mean that there is always sin. And so um, I think we understand that. But more importantly, we know that Jesus was sinless because of the consistent witness of Scripture. All throughout Scripture, 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, he committed no sin, neither was deceit in his mouth. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for our sake he made, uh, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been uh, tempted as we are, <clears throat> yet without sin. And so time and time again, the biblical witness testifies to Jesus' sinlessness and therefore his qualification to be our Messiah, the spotless lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the other question about Mary and Joseph being bad parents, well, although this question is raised sometimes, I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, uh, because the answer is no. 
<clears throat> these were perhaps the most strategically handpicked parents in redemptive history. However, it does actually make me feel better a little bit that they let a child slip through their fingers, at least on one occasion. So, so <laughs> but after they searched for Jesus in, these, in, the, in this passage, they find him in verses 46 to 47, they're reunited. It says, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers and listening to them, asking them questions, and all who heard him were amazed at, uh, at his, an- his understanding and his answers. What a relief. They found him. They found Jesus, and I, I, just, I just, you know, uh, want to ask Mary and Joseph when we get to heaven, how do you feel about this story being included in the, in the Bible for everyone to see the, the time you lost Jesus? But, you know, I guess it doesn't paint him in the best light. But however, one of the purposes of this text, uh, this isolated text in Jesus' adolescent years, was that it would foreshadow his messianic purpose. And so the story gives the reader a clue about Jesus' messianic and salvific purposes as he grows in his self-understanding. And so one detail that looms large in this, uh, in this text is that there was these three days that they found him after. They journeyed a day away from Jerusalem. They journeyed a day coming back, and on the third day, they found him. And as an astute biblical scholar, he recognized the patterns and numbers are significant. For for example, the number seven, this number of perfection or completion we see oftentimes. And then also we encounter the number three. If you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you'll see at least one other instance of three. Uh, This is when Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days after being lost in the belly in utter darkness. <laughs> Appreciate it, bro. Um, in utter darkness, he, he emerged, and he was beneficial and good for kingdom service. And, uh, and likewise, the boy Jesus was lost for three days. And later we know there will be a man who Jesus died in the tomb three days, and then he comes back to do, his, to do the Lord's work. This is foreshadowing. So not only is Jesus, is this a, a, a vignette about Jesus growing in his self-understanding, this is a transitional time for us to be able to know more about what Jesus came to do, which he came in to seek and to save us as our Savior. Another foreshadowing moment here is the, is the Passover. So this is an important detail that communicates uh, God's deliverance from Egypt. And so this, this story uh, is taking place during Passover, and like every Passover, Jerusalem swelled to about 10 times its normal size. The population was just huge because God's people were filling the streets. There was lambs and sheep everywhere. But on this particular one, the ultimate sacrifice was in Jerusalem. On this particular Passover, the lamb to end all sacrifices was present. And so these are clues, these three days, this, this idea of the Passover, the, the, the context of the story, they're letting us know that Jesus' purpose was a lot bigger than just, you know, going to the temple, but he one day would fulfill all the temple meant. And so these three days, this motif is, is so helpful for us. And so let's now look to verses 48 to 50, and it really lets us into the significance of the fatherhood conversation in this text. It says, when, uh, And when his parents saw, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. 
And he said to them, Why are you looking for me? Do you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And so for the first time, we actually see, hear Jesus talking. You know, in the infancy narratives, he's obviously not talking. And then we, we zoom forward to his ministry. He's talking there. But this is kind of a climax in the first two chapters of Luke, where Jesus actually speaks for himself. And I think we, it, this is very, very important because his distressed mother, who thought they lost him, then comes to him and says, why'd you do this to us? What are you doing? And then uh, in response he, to her statement, he says, your, your, your father and I have been searching for you in distress. And then Jesus asserts his identity with his heavenly father as primary and not his identification with his earthly father. He has to be about his heavenly father's business, which this is what the business that he came to earth to do in the first place, to redeem a people for himself. And so sometimes, uh, the first time I read through this, as I was reading through the text just over and over to kind of get my mind around it, it was easy for me to miss the relationships dynamic between father and son, especially for someone who is Jewish. During uh, this time, it was important, these two years before uh, a boy was turning 13, it was very important that the father would uh, apprentice the son in both uh, spiritual things and vocationally. And so there's a very intensive time that was going on here, and uh, it was a very formative time before the bar mitzvah, when a boy was no longer considered under the law as, you know, as under his parents, but he was seen as a man. And so this is actually very important. So this idea of bar mitzvah, bar, son, mitzvah, covenant, son of the covenant, this Jesus at 13 would no longer be seen as Uh, fulfilling the law of God just by being in his father's house, but he would have to do it himself. This is a lot of responsibility. This is a passing of the baton, a significant milestone in the life of a young man. But during the time when Jesus was probably the most sort of tethered to his heavenly father, he shockingly says that, you know, I need to be about my heavenly father's business. I need to be in that house right? You guys knew where to find me because this is part of my purpose. And so, uh, so the reality of parenting is in our face here. You know, so we see the, the work of, the, uh, of, of, of uh, Joseph as a parent. You know, Joseph was just doing his thing, parenting. You know, he was, he was just kind of doing his best to follow the customs. I mean, Mary and Joseph were both faithful people. And then what we understand is that, is, is, is that there was a work that God was doing alongside of him that was far more than he could actually imagine. God was making up the lack. You know, my parents, they were here uh, after um, uh, Thanksgiving. It was great to see them. Uh, great to have them here. I was glad for you guys to meet them. <laughs> And then, uh, you know, but if, they, if somebody ever asks them about their kids, who by God's grace are actually following the Lord, they say, we're just glad we didn't mess them up. And I was puzzled by that for a while, but then after a while I started to get it. You know, they are praising God for the fact that he made up the lack that they didn't have. They knew that God was coming alongside of them doing the things that they were not able to do. They knew that this, they weren't in this alone, and so some of us, we need to realize that God's plan for our children is far greater than our own. 
And then we need to realize as God's children that God might have far greater plans for us than we even have for ourselves. And then, you know, and so this is just wonderful that we can uh, aspire to do wonderful things for God. That people would have to say, you know, the Lord Jesus had to have been in play there. The Holy Spirit had to be at work there because there's no way that that person can do that. Much like the fishermen, when they started to teach in the, in the synagogue and what have you. They're like, these people are unlittered men. How in the world are they knowing all these things? Well, they've experienced God. God was with them. And even so, when we are, we're parenting and as, as we are uh, coming along our children, trying to help them grow and develop, understand there's someone who is parenting with you. So some of you guys might say, you know, I hear you, but you don't understand my situation. These behavioral challenges that we are walking through, this uh, season of, uh, of just walking through the, 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 the difficulty of parenting, I can't do it alone. And I'll say, you're right, but God is with you. He's never left you. In fact, we have to pray and ask God to come alongside of us, to walk with us, and for the Holy Spirit to do work that we've never expected before. And then we also have the people of God alongside us as well. So we're not alone in this. There's a book that, uh, called Family Discipleship that many in our church have read. Uh, it actually, uh, Kilo Facey has started some, in the past, he started some book groups that were, I think they were a fantastic idea to just get people together to talk about parenting surrounding a book and, and what have you. And, um, and, and it has some great ideas in it about how to shepherd your children surrounding modeling milestones and, mo and moments. And so I was just grateful that this was going on at the church. And then as I was reading this text, the significance of those practices were in my face. And so I, 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 would, I would pray that, you know, for those who have read the book, talk about it amongst each other, you know, amongst the rest of us. Let us glean from, the, from your reading of the book and being in the trenches of parenting and what have you, but also, you know, pick it up yourself and read it as well. So all I have to say, I, I don't want to uh, make the whole sermon about parenting because that would be to lessen the scope of the text, but I'll just give one sort of anecdote that I've sort of learned as I've been sort of thinking about these, uh, these verses. And this quote is encapsulated well by uh, Thabiti Anyabule when he says, uh, Sometimes responsible parenting is less about our successes and more about how we respond to our failings. I'll read that again. Sometimes responsible parenting is less about our successes and more about how we respond to our failings. So sometimes the best way that parents can model what it means to be a godly man or godly woman or even modeling it to anybody is not just to talk about repentance but to repent to when we wrong our children, to ask them for their forgiveness and humility and to let them know that we've asked God to, to, uh, to, um, you know, to, to forgive us as well. And so these are just a couple of things that even I've just been washing over me as I've been reading this text. And so now let's look to verse 50 again at the very end of that. This is Mary and Joseph's confusion and they said, do not, uh, um, and, and they did not understand the saying that he, he had spoken to them. So Mary and Joseph, here, at the end of this last couple of verses, they were confused by all this, and rightly so. You have Joseph, who is pouring into Jesus. 
You have Jesus, who's now claiming someone else as his father. They, they were aware of, of, of all this, but at the same time, these silent years in between his birth narrative and now, they're, they're probably very normal. There probably wasn't much going on in these silent years in Jesus' childhood as far as him you know, doing miracles and what have you. And so, so now they're in this season of trying to figure out, okay, who is, who is my son that I've, I've raised? So it's evident that Jesus now in this story is very aware of who his father is, and he assumed that others, his parents in particular, would have the same sense. So Jesus asserts his divine self-consciousness, and it seems to bring this flood of confusion over how you parent this sort of child Messiah. But, you know, Mary and Joseph, they weren't alone in this because the disciples were with Jesus as well. They saw him heal the sick and raise the dead, and they saw him do all these things, but they too were still in denial about who Jesus was. This is a lot to stomach. Imagine if there's a kid who's, you know, over here in this hallway all of a sudden started doing miracles and stuff. I'd be like, who are you? You know, we just had you over to our house for dinner. And, you know, it's just, it'd be a strange reality. So now this is all beginning to hit them, especially as Jesus is growing and asserting his uh, uh, relationship to his heavenly father. And so now let's uh, see how Jesus responds to his parents um, in, in verses 51 to 52. It says, and then he went down with them and came to Nazareth, as, uh, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And so Jesus respected authority. And I think that's central to him growing in wisdom in this passage. And so he loved his parents in verse 51, but also he was respectful to those who were uh, authorities in the temple. Verse 46, uh, earlier it said, After three days they found him in the temple, sitting amongst the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. So verse 46 underscores or coheres with verse 52 that we just read. It said Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And while these verses, uh, this verse, verse 40, was not a part of this text, we did it last week, but what was going on is that it tells us that Jesus grew and became strong and filled with wisdom and in favor with uh, God, and, uh, and the favor of God was upon him. And so what we see is that Jesus was, uh, Jesus' purpose to fulfill all that the tabernacle, the, t- the temple demanded of us as the ultimate sacrifice, was just being put in their faith. faith. So by learning about the temple from its leaders, Jesus was understanding more about what he came to accomplish. And so this is profound because Jesus humbly listened and learned from those who would misunderstand the fact that he came to fulfill what was going on in the temple, and they would later crucify him. And so this speaks volumes to us today. So today we are armed with social media. We are armed with search engines and everyone thinks they're an expert on everything. And we're less likely to listen and humility is increasingly an afterthought. And it seems that the more and more we read the news, we look to affirm our assumptions rather than being informed. And so now we've grown accustomed to reading uh, information from people who we agree with just to gather ammunition against people who don't agree with us. This is not the posture of Jesus as a learner, the perfect learner. The perfect, that Jesus listened and empathized with someone to understand where they were coming from. 
This doesn't mean he automatically had to agree with them. It just means that you, you, you know, he was trying to see how they got there. And because of understanding how they got there, he was able to minister to the gospel to very specific wounds in their lives. So it's possible for us to listen to someone that we disagree with and try to understand their struggles without, uh, without taking on their misunderstandings of the truth. This is what it means to be a minister of the gospel. And I think, unfortunately, many of us miss countless opportunities to minister to people because we're so, um, we're, we're, we're so bent on trying to let them know where their logic is uh, faulty rather than listening to them, hearing where they're coming from, and then ministering to what is often an intellectual facade, uh, of, which is why they reject Jesus. You guys, you guys with me on that? Sometimes that we are, and I'll just say it again because I didn't get many yeses. <laughs> Sometimes we, we, when we listen to folks, we have to listen to the misstep. And sometimes when they are communicating this to us, we're so prone to want to t say, you're wrong about that, that we, that we really never really get to the, the emotional challenges that cause them to reject faith in Christ. And so what I'm trying to say is that we're not giving up truth you're simply listening for the brokenness, and then you're ministering the gospel to that, because oftentimes the intellectual sort of defeater that they try to put up about why they're not believers is not the real thing. It's something else. And so my, my fear is, is that if we're just prone to sort of use information to, uh, as ammunition against others and to justify our assumptions, is that sometimes we begin using the Bible that way too. Sometimes it's easy to slip into this mode where we start reading the Bible as a text for our use to affirm our assumptions or as ammunition against others. But the Bible is not a tool. We don't use it. This is the authoritative word of God. And we have to sit under it, not over it as the authority. The Bible is the authority. It has the authority within it. And so we have to let it correct and, uh, and sanctify us. We have to go to it with a posture, not of trying to wield it against other people, but to allow it to shape us. And as we sit under its authority, our convictions are strengthened, are they not? But it also gives us the ability to understand that we have to uh, conform and submit to what the Bible is saying, and then let others know about this grand and wonderful news of Jesus as well. And so Jesus is a great example of a learner, learning from people he, you know, learning from people who he disagreed with in the sense that he was learning about the, the brokenness in their own lives. I mean, just think about, you know, if you, we only got one service today, so, you know, and some of you just got here, so I'm going to keep preaching for you. And so, um, so feel free to turn off the clock. Um, so, so what would happen is that, <laughs> some of y'all just, yeah, welcome to the 11 o'clock people. And so, um, so, where was I? So, 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 think about this. Jesus had a lot to say to the Pharisees and Sadducees throughout his ministry, right? However, when here, he's sitting humbly listening to them. And so, I, I think what he was sensing at times was, okay, what is driving them to overextend the law? What's driving people to legalism? 
He wasn't learning to mimic their legalism. What he was learning about is the, the reasons why people felt like they had to do that. You see? And this is how we can learn from people that we don't agree with because we're learning where their misstep is. Why, like what is the hurt that they, are, that they are learning about them, really? What's the hurt that they're carrying? And then not, ministering, not trying to logic them into Jesus, but really ministering the gospel to the wound that's causing them to be hesitant about accepting our Savior. And that's the point right there. And so now as we kind of conclude, kind of, uh, we're embarking on a new year. You know, 2022 for, for some is just a, a good benchmark. Some of you guys are just like, I'm just glad to leave 2021 behind us and even 2020. Uh, some of us have, very, have had a very hard year. I mean, there's people in our body who are grieving losses that are very near right now. And, and they're here. And, and then there's people who are like, yes, 2022, uh, uh, you know, just let's, let's do it. Let's, 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 make it, let's make a great one. But I think this, this text raises questions that are helpful for, for people who are on both sides of that coin. And this is sort of a review of what we've done today. So the first question that this text raises is this. What patterns do you have, both negative and positive, and how do they shape you? What patterns do you have, uh, for better or for worse, and how do they shape you? So our uh, patterns ready us for difficult times and give us the strength to endure during life's storms. A, a friend of mine who lost his brother tragically, I, I think his brother was in his mid or early 30s, and he was saying, you know, it, it wasn't that we changed what we did as we were grieving, it's that we just kept doing what we were already doing. And those are the things that carried us. And so those customs are so important. And also in good times, our customs train our hearts to delight not in the gifts, but in the giver of the gifts. And that's so important. Question number two. Do I respond to authority in a God-honoring manner? Oftentimes our response to authority can reveal some deep-seated things within us that can actually help us as we are uh, navigating life if we understand authority rightly. Not that, you know, we, yeah, anyway, we don't have to go into everything about authority, but, you know, just, just a question for you. <laughs> number three. Do I approach Scripture with a posture of a learner? Someone who is trying to be formed, looking to be shaped by the Word of God and not just using it as an instrument. And, and I know that we're in the proximity of one of the largest seminaries in America, so I'll, I'll say this. For those who especially become very astute at studying God's Word, you are most prone to doing this. Using the Bible to gain a platform. Using the Bible as simply an instrument, and sometimes even in the most well-intended, you're just in it so much, it becomes just another book and not the words of life from our living God. And so we have to uh, delight in these, have a posture of a learner. Even when you've become so overly familiar with the Scriptures, you're not really that familiar with them at all. They're unsearchable in their riches. And so let's try to recapture that this year. And so, lastly, am I growing in my understanding? Am, am I growing in understanding of my identity? Our, the, the adversary uh, is having a field day, convincing us that our identity is rooted in anything other than its source, who's God. 
Our culture is encouraging us that our identity is our achievements, our sexuality, our race, our relationships, our material possessions, and the list goes on. And the subtle and tragic thing is that each of those things under Christ's lordship is not all bad, but what we have to do is understand that none of those things are able to be the foundation of our identity and our personhood. Our identity comes from God. And so for those who don't know Christ, your hope of answering this question about your identity is all up for grabs. So in the end, this text is about Jesus growing in, expressing his identity as our Savior. And so until you understand Christ's identity, you'll never understand yours. And so you know, you'll search and search and arrive at disappointing and heartbreaking dead ends time and time again until you recognize who Jesus is, you'll never understand who you are. So today, I invite you to end the search. Come to Jesus. He is the one who made you. He is our creator and our sustainer. And then when you will, as the, the, the Bible story I read to my kids over and over says, you know what, the reason why you are valued is because you're loved by him. The reason why we have, you know, the, the, anyway. So you will never find out your own identity until it's rooted in our creator. So come to him today. He'll have you in your search that slams you into so many brick wall dead ends, but also for believers, allow these questions that we just t talked about that emerge from this text uh, to, to allow you to come of age in your own identity as a believer this year. Press into it even more this year. And so my hope and prayer is that 2022, it is a year where we'll grow in our self-understanding as children of God and people who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for the way that you have um, shown us yourself in the scriptures, the way that you continually come alongside us as we grow, as we begin to learn more about ourselves and more about you. Father, we are grateful just to um, even be in the, amongst the people of God doing this together as a community. So Father, we ask that you would uh, be amongst us as we are doing this work. I pray for those who are hurting today who are mourning losses of parents, who are um, thinking about parenting and they're thinking about their own parenting struggles. God, bless them. Empower them today. God, I pray for your children as we grow in our understanding of who we, who we are based upon our being your children. I pray that you will allow us to grow in our ability to understand that. I pray that we would find security in that and that alone. May 2022 be a year where uh, in 365 days we can come back here and say God was faithful. And because of his faithfulness and his kindness, we, we better know who we are because of, because of that. God, we thank you for this time again and pray uh, in your name. Amen.